Pretty Mental is about accepting our full selves and inspiring others to do the same by being daringly unfiltered. This means completely normalizing all things mental health and the wild journey that has brought us here. We are challenging the stigmatization of normal human suffering, and we are done pretending and subscribing to the notion that it is taboo to have challenging mental health experiences. Welcome to the Pretty Mental Health Club, and enjoy the show. Hey, Valentina. Hey, Paula. And hello, everybody. And welcome to another episode of Pretty Mental. For today's podcast, we had the incredible opportunity to sit with Dr. Russ Kennedy. Dr. Russ is a really fascinating human that studied neuroscience and is a doctor and MD and also went into all kinds of meditation and Eastern traditions and has just been on a very extensive journey to solve his own struggles with anxiety as well as his patients. And he brings forth such an incredible wealth of information as a result of these experiences. Ooh, my God. I feel like we could just ask him any question and he would come out with the most well-rounded answer because not only does he exist in the very Western world, he also exists in the Eastern world. He, I told him in the podcast that it feels like all corners of his brain are lit up because he speaks from all angles. This was such an enlightening, such an entertaining podcast. Dr. Russ is also, was also a stand-up comedian for, I think he said 15 years. So there was, it was very dynamic. It was fun and extremely informative and very helpful. And we are just so grateful for him to share his spirit with us for the hour and however many minutes we were in this conversation for. And with that, Pretty Mental family, take in a deep breath with us. And tune in. We want to give a shout out to our first sponsor, Awaken Village Press, an indie publishing house who's here to awaken the planet one book at a time. This is a super special episode because Dr. Russ, who's on today's podcast, actually worked with Awaken Village to write Anxiety Rx, which you'll hear us talk about more in this episode. Our messages are medicine for ourselves and for the collective. We all have a story to share, and once we release it, the transformation begins. From the idea stage to the publishing stage, Awaken Village is here to walk the entire writer's journey with you. And the best part is that you don't have to be a published author to start. Twice a year, Awaken Village walks new authors through a five-month container where they will be held every step of the way as they embark on the transformative journey of birthing their books. We'll post a link to the container in our show notes. The container begins on August 7th, so make sure you check them out. And they're offering an early bird special of $300 off for those who sign up before July 1st. And now we want to give a shout out to Conscious Conversion, recently known as Resonate with Sarah, They are a holistic multimedia marketing agency for thought leaders of the new paradigm. 
They work with Instagram, YouTube, Google, and Facebook ads to help you cut right through the clutter of the internet so that your offerings are met by those who are hungry to convert. They recently came out with a free two-minute quiz that actually helps you uncover your paradigm-shifting personality. I took it and I got a spiritual catalyst. I was literally blown away by how detailed their results were. They lay out so many nuggets of wisdom to help you take your purpose to the next level. We'll post the quiz in the show notes if you guys want to discover your paradigm-shifting personality as well. And now, let's dive into today's conversation. It is June 22nd, 2021. We are opening up the space, calling in our higher selves, calling in the universe, the energies that oversee us, the energies that walk on this journey with us, calling in our ancestors, our angels, our spirit guides. Opening up the space for raw, open, real, vulnerable communication, for healing communication, so that as we share our journeys with our community, we heal ourselves and we heal each other. We open ourselves up with love for whatever messages want to come through, for the highest healing of ourselves, our community, and everyone they come in contact with. The portal is now open. Dr. Russ. Welcome, Hey, thanks. Thanks for having me. This is great. We're super excited to talk to you. I know this is going to be a really, really juicy, um, really well-rounded and multi-layered conversation. So we're ready to dive in with you. Okay. Setting the bar high right off the bat. Let's go. <laughs> oh, it's going to be good. We feel it. We know it. Let's start out with if you can introduce yourself to our listeners. That would sure. be amazing. So my name is Dr. Russ Kennedy. I am a medical doctor. I have a degree in neuroscience. I've got master's level training in developmental psychology because it all starts in childhood. Uh, I'm also a professional, well, I'm a yoga and meditation teacher. I'm certified. I wouldn't say I'm professional because I don't teach very much anymore. Uh, I was a stand-up comic for 15 years. So I was a doctor in the daytime and I would go out and do the comedy clubs at night. So I try to be as well-rounded as I can. I struggled with anxiety myself for probably three decades. It caused me to burn out from medicine. Uh, my father committed suicide when I was, I was jumping into a vulnerable conversation when I was 26. And uh, I grew up with him being schizophrenic. So there was always an element of chaos around my house. There was points where he was absolutely nurturing, loving, caring, taught me how to you know, ride a bike, hit a ball, all that kind of stuff. But there was points where I would lose him. And uh, when I lost him as a child, you know, even like eight, nine, 10 years old, he would go psychotic and I, I couldn't figure out what was going on. So as I got to be a teen, I realized that it wasn't really that safe to be connected to him because not that he was, you know, abusive or violent anyway, but that I would lose him. He would go psychotic. So my, in my little you know boy brain, it was like, well, why do you love this guy when he's only going to leave you in a way? So it, it led me to feel that love wasn't safe. My mom was great. My mom was, you know, she came from like a Scottish reserve family. So, you know, there, she's British. So it's kind of like there's no need to say I love you in British families. Basically, we just we put food, food in your belly and a roof over your head and that you should assume that you're loved at that point. So my mom wasn't cold or distant. She just wasn't, you know, warm and connected as well. So I developed this anxiety issue. 
And um, none of the traditional therapies were helping me, like medications, psychotherapy. And I did all the other stuff, EMDR, all that kind of stuff. And it helped, all these things helped a bit, but they never really healed my anxiety until I sort of took my healing into my own hands. I wound up taking psilocybin, LSD, MDMA, ayahuasca, just to examine the other side. I lived at a temple in India for a while, just to kind of study anxiety there. So I'd like to think that there's very few people on earth that know anxiety from as many perspectives as I do. And I, I'm really committed. I wrote a book called Anxiety Rx, documenting my journey and the journey of my patients to heal from anxiety and realize that healing from anxiety is an inside job. You know, other people can help you, but you really have to connect with yourself because ultimately, and I do have a point here, I'm wrapping it up. Uh, ultimately anxiety, all anxiety is separation anxiety. All anxiety is separation anxiety. And it's mostly separation from yourself, but it started off being from a separation from a caregiver when you were younger. How's that for an intro? Amazing. Okay. <laughs> there is, there is so much there. What there have is. you, yeah, absolutely. So you, you, you started out the traditional Western model route. Yeah, I absolutely did. What aspects of that? Cause you know, we're always, we're, we're always in a, integrating or working to integrate multiple perspectives, both the Western, the Eastern, the spiritual, the shamanic, right? What aspects of like, of the Western route do you feel worked for you? What aspects kind of pushed you away? What's your perspective on the on the Western approach to mental health and anxiety? Well, Western medicine, allopathic medicine is very reductionistic, right? So they they often believe that anxiety, depression, all that is a brain disorder. You know, when whereas with me, I feel it's a combination of body and mind. And that's what the book is about, that, that I say that anxiety is actually more held in your body. It's an energy held in your body of alarm from unresolved childhood wounding than it is from your mind. So traditional psychology, traditional psychiatry believes that it's more of a mind issue. I believe that it's more of a body issue. So I, I, I sort of have a bit of a, you know, we, we hit a kind of an impasse there in medicine. And I just was having a hard time giving people antidepressants all the time when I knew I was sort of masking their symptoms and their, their symptoms were a message for them to, to connect with themselves. Ultimately, that's what almost all psychiatric symptoms are from. It's like, hey, there's a child in you that didn't get their needs met and they suffered trauma with that and they want to find you now. And they're doing it maybe in the wrong way because they create pain in your system. And typically when we get pain in our system, we withdraw from it. So my belief is that when we go through traumatic experiences as children, we don't have secure attachment to neutralize it. That energy is too much for our little minds to bear, so we push it into our body. You know, Freud would call it repression, whatever you want to call it, but we push it into our body. And from that point on, we don't want to have to go back down into our body, so we get trapped in our heads. We ruminate, we overthink, we worry, and the worries have to get more and more severe because we've got to stay in our heads. Because as soon as we go back down into our body, it's just too damn painful. So a lot of us, for many years, live in our heads. And and we become smart. Like I, I see a lot of anxious people. They're quite intelligent, usually, because we're really good at thinking. We've been overthinking from the time we were children. So And worry is kind of like this compensatory mechanism to keep us in our head because we don't want to go down into the body where the feelings are. And that's why we get trapped. So what I talk about in the book is how you go back into the body, how you find that younger version of yourself, 
and how you heal that part. And then when you heal the alarm in your body, there's nothing left to feed the thoughts anymore. And we've all experienced that when we have an anxious thought and we go, ah, that's probably not going to happen. Or we'll have an anxious thought and we'll think, oh my God, this is the worst thing ever. And then and I, t- I asked people, I said, have you ever had an anxious thought? And then two or three hours later thought, that wasn't actually that bad. Well, it was the state of your body that determined how you feel about it. So if you're in alarm and you think an anxious thought, it's going to feel a lot worse than if you're feeling okay and you have an anxious thought. And the anxious thought when you're in alarm will stick. And the anxious thought when you're not in alarm won't stick. So you you guys have to rail me in because I will just, I'll channel things. I'll just start rambling. So, you know, you gotta, if, if you rail me in sometimes, because I'll just, I'll just start channeling stuff. So just, you know, if you want to redirect it. me, please, you know, don't ever feel like you, you're interrupting me because sometimes I, I need to be interrupted. No, we well, are on purpose allowing you to channel. We want to hear okay. all of this. Yeah, yeah, sure. yeah, yeah. I, I want to ask, how did you go from the mind-centered reductionist perspective of the Western model to this perspective that you have now that how involved the body is in this? How did sure. you how did you discover that? Sure, three letters, LSD. That's basically, you know, 2013, I went to India. I burned out of medicine in 2013, ruptured my Achilles tendon because of the, I had Achilles tendonitis and it was pretty significant. And the, the arrogant doctor that I was, I injected myself with lidocaine and cortisol. Now, the relief is immediate when you do that, but the risk is that you'll rupture your Achilles tendon, which mine did. And, you know, I used to think that that was the worst thing that ever happened to me. And medical school was the best thing. Now I think medical school might have been the worst thing that ever happened to me. And uh, the Achilles rupture might have been the best because it made me leave medicine. I was totally burned out. I was in a field that I, I wasn't happy with. I wasn't happy with the results I was getting with my patients or, you know, myself to some extent. So uh, I went to India and I came back from India and I wasn't a lot better, actually. I studied spirit and all this kind of stuff. And and yes, it was good. And I had a, a, an episode of uh, about 90 minutes where I was enlightened in the, on this rooftop in this monastery in India. So I know what it feels like for 90 minutes. And it was pretty amazing, you know, but I haven't been able to get back there since. But when I got home, I was really kind of distraught. And a friend of mine who's an Ayurvedic doctor, um, he said, you know, maybe what we should do with you is try you on like a psychedelic, like LSD and that kind of stuff to see if you can really get to the root of the issue. So I did LSD. The short version of the story is that uh, it fractured my mind a lot. And from someone who relies on their mind to control everything, it was a devastatingly horrifying experience to not have my mind because I was so used to controlling things with my mind. So that was, it was horrible. But as I came out of LSD, it kind of showed me that my uh, anxiety, I was still calling it anxiety back then, was really a sense of alarm that was held in my solar plexus, you know, just where my ribs meet in the front there. And uh, it's purple. It's like this crystalline density. It's it's, it's like, um, it's like stalagmites in a cave, you know, that, 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 that point up, it pushes up into my heart, it pushes into my back, it goes into my belly. And, uh, and that's my alarm. And then it, that kind of over the course of the next couple of years, you know, uh, with Dr. Gordon Neufeld, who's a my, kind of a mentor of mine, who's a development, developmental psychologist, 
you know, he came up with this term called alarm. And as soon as I heard it, I thought, well, that's what it is. That's, that's what I felt on LSD. And then I started writing about it. And, and, and then I started really feeling it. I thought, well, what if, what if that's the source of, you know, the anxious thoughts? What if it isn't, the anxiety isn't just in my mind? What if the alarm is actually driving the anxious thoughts? Which, you know, I found out that's what it is because the mind is basically just a make sense, meaning making machine. And it, there's something called interoception and exteroception. Interoception is when the mind sort of reads what's going on in the body. Exteroception is when the mind reads what's going outside of the body. So inside of my body, it was feeling this, this, you know, this alarm. So when your mind reads that alarm, it's got to do something with it. So what it does is it makes up an alarming story to be completely consistent with the feeling. So that's where worries come from. That's where these scary stories come from, or what I call the three W's of worry, which in ascending order are warnings, what ifs, and worst case scenarios, because that's really what the mind does. It starts off with a warning. Hey, you know what? You should get your blood sugar checked. You know, your father had diabetes. Then what if? What if I have diabetes? And then the worst case scenario is my father had diabetes and he died from it, and I'm going to die from it too. So you get this ascending order of worry that keeps you away from this alarm in your body. So what I found was that when I started addressing the alarm in my body, and then here's the kicker on top of that, is the alarm in my body was my younger self, inner child, younger self, whatever you want to call it, trying to get my attention. And unfortunately, what human beings do when they feel pain is they recoil from it. So we go into different things. We go into like shopping or internet or whatever, addictions of some kind to get away from this pain. When really what we have to do is go into the pain, realize that it's actually not that bad unless we attach thoughts to it. The alarm itself is uncomfortable, no question. But it's when we add thoughts to it that it becomes this reverberating cycle that I call the alarm anxiety cycle. So we have alarm in our body that creates anxiety, anxious thoughts in our mind. The anxious thoughts in our mind create more alarm in our body, which creates more anxious thoughts in our mind. So we get into this. So I found this theory that if I could separate the two, if I could separate the thoughts of my mind from the feeling in my body, maybe I could break the cycle. And that's exactly what happened. That's exactly what happened. I learned how to break the cycle. And once I learned how to break the cycle, I felt like I had some power over the anxiety that was ruling my life for like 20 years. So that's what I write in the book, Anxiety Rx. I talk about how you find your alarm in your system, how you, how you learn to go in a sensation of the present moment as opposed to going into the future-based worries or the traumas of the past. So really, that's kind of the crux of it. And it's, it's very atypical. Like, it's, the book is kind of ahead of its time. You know, it's, it's selling really well. I think there's like 2,000 copies of it sold now in like seven and a half months, which is great for a self-published book. And I published it myself because I have a friend, Mark Willen, who wrote this book about intergenerational trauma called It Didn't Start With You. And his publisher, which I believe was Peng, Penguin Random House, really made him change a lot of it. And I didn't want to change any of my book. I wanted to be able to say what I wanted to say, talk about my father's suicide, you know, talk about the ugly parts of anxiety and, and just the way I wanted to say it. And, and that's, what I, that's what I loved about being a writer is that I can say whatever I want to say. And self-publishing means that I can, you know, put it out there. And, you know, I, I'm sure the book would have sold a lot more if I went with a big publishing house. But this way, I got to just write it the exact way that I want. And I'm very, very happy with it. So again, there you go. Rambling long answer. 
You know, what you described as separating the mind from the sensations or just being able to differentiate between the two is very similar to, are you familiar with Vipassana? Mm -hmm. Yeah, 10 days, you know, no talking, you know, yes. Yes, I'm, I'm, I've never done it. I've never done it. I've thought of it. There's a place in British Columbia where I live called Merit, and there is a Vipassana center there. And it's free, and you know you go for ten days, and you just sit for ten days. And uh, I've always been afraid of doing it, you know. Even though uh, ayahuasca was probably the hands down most frightening experience of my life, um, I would consider it now. But there's a lot of me that's kind of like I've done a lot of meditation. I know vipassana is different, uh, but there is that sense that I think that I would. My instinct is that I would get a lot out of it. And knowing me, within two weeks, I would be back to my old ways. So what 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 were you able to do then to to separate the mind habits from that alarm system in your body? Yeah, I go into sensation. I'd really focus on sensation. So that's what I do with my patients. And I have a room on Clubhouse every Sunday where I, I do intuitive readings on people. So that's a lot of what I do now is intuitive reading on people because my superpower seems to be being able to find where people's blocks to loving themselves is, you know? So if I can find your blocks, you know, like say, for example, one girl's mother was a very, um, very adept singer and she was a good singer too, but she wasn't a great singer. So she really, the daughter really, really suffered trying to be as good as her mother and developed this sort of, you know, block to singing and block to herself. Like she had a really, negative view of herself because she couldn't sing as well as her mother and her mother had that kind of unconscious drive that she wanted her to sing better than she could so she just had this feeling like she couldn't love herself and there's a great saying with children which is you know if you abuse abandon or neglect a child they don't stop loving the parent they stop loving themselves so when the child stops loving themselves then they don't allow love in and when you don't allow love in, gradually the fear bias of the brain, you know, and my background in neuroscience teaches me a lot about the fear bias of the brain, starts to take over. So your life starts to get filled with fear and fear. It's like a closed box. So, so the more fear you put in the box, the more love you push out. But the plus side of that is the more love you can put in, the more fear you push out. So healing comes from being able to love that part of you that's alarmed. And because that part of you is probably your younger self. So we worked on her loving herself, whatever her singing level was, whatever, however well things went singing wise. So once she was able to do that and get past it, and this, you know, she, she'd been dealing with this since she was six years old. So I could see pretty clearly that there was an issue with her singing. I won't go into the long story of it, but, but I could intuit that she had an issue with singing. And I said that to her, I said, you know, is there a background? Is there singing in the background for you? And, and, and she's, you know, she semi teared up and it was like, well, yeah, that's my problem. My mother never really accepted my singing. So I said, okay, well, do you accept your singing? It's like, no, of course I don't. Because if your parent doesn't accept you for something, you won't accept yourself either for that. So it was, we worked on that and we got her through that and she found the alarm. Her alarm was in her throat, of course, which makes sense. You know, like the pressure, she had a pressure there. She said it felt like an orange stuck in her throat. I don't really know where the orange part comes from, but we worked on kind of pulling the orange out of her throat, allowing things to move through there, like just doing, you know, kind of uh, intentional 
meditations to allow things to flow through. Like she imagined like a, a waterfall coming through her, her throat into her chest or, you know, moving, moving air or water in and out in this unencumbered way. And that was, she was able to attach to her unconscious program of, you know, this isn't good enough for me. And then really love that little girl. And this is what I do sometimes too, is get a picture. I get you to get a picture of yourself when you were whatever age that you experienced the trauma and put that up in your bathroom and talk to him or her every day. And, you know, the more it takes a while because, you know, if we've been ignoring our younger self, inner child for a long time, they don't really trust us. And part of us, we don't really trust them, too, because they are they're holding a lot of pain. So it's 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 joining them, two of them together that allows you to start feeling life and going back into feeling again, because feeling in your body is where life is. It's not in your mind. It's not in, you know, what you can think or what you can accomplish. It's, it's the feeling that you can create in your own body. So if you're not comfortable with your own body or going into your own body, life is going to be pretty uncomfortable for you. So, so that's what we worked on. So basically it's, it's connecting to that, that alarm, which is typically your younger self. And that seems to be my power is being able to see where people are blocked from loving themselves and then showing them how to do it. You know, what's so interesting to me is that you say that part of you is afraid to go into the Vipassana retreat, but it sounds like you do that every single day or every time you encounter a moment where the sensations potentially get overwhelming or like you're good at going back into your body. Yeah, most of the times, you know, my my mother broke her hip a couple nights ago. She's eighty seven and she's fairly frail, but she's Scottish, so she's got those freaking Scottish genes, man. They just they're like the Terminator. They just you know it's it's it, they just keep going. Like she just keeps going, and hopefully she'll <laughs> she'll she'll you know make her way out of this too. But my mother tends to worry. You know, she's a lot better than she was, and I've helped her a considerable amount, but. She grew up in Glasgow during World War II. She was, I think, 10 years old. Um, the blitz, the bombing, and that kind of thing. So she's lived her whole life in anxiety. So, you know, I talked to her just just about every day uh, until she went to the hospital. And every day was a bit of a struggle for her. You know, when she would say, I, I've had a good day today, that would be a very rare occurrence. Usually, you know, there's places where she just really, and I work with her and she had just such a tremendous uh, resistance to going in and, and accepting and loving that younger version of herself. And um, she did, you know, she improved for sure, but she, you know, it's almost like you can't teach an old dog new tricks. Like she really, she really focused a lot on misery, my mother. And that was, uh, that's, that was a big problem for her. And she realized it, but she really just couldn't seem to break her, break the pattern. And yeah, it's been a, it's been an uphill battle for me dealing with her just, just being so, you know, negative all the time, you know, cause I, I don't want to be like that. I really don't. And I know I can go there. I know I can go to the dark side for sure. And when I was a physician, an allopathic physician and burned out, yeah, I would go there a lot. You know, there was points where, you know, I was suicidal around when I ruptured my Achilles tendon in there. It's like, I didn't know. I knew I had to get into medicine, but medicine was such a part of my identity. You know, I was so I was so fixated on being Dr. Russell Kennedy that if I wasn't Dr. Russell Kennedy anymore, who was I? You know, and so I, you know, I I really focused on it was a real opportunity for me to to focus on my healing. And and that's what I did, and that's what I wrote about. And that's what I love doing is helping other people understand that anxiety is not what you think it is. And it's not what most psychiatrists think it is or psychologists think it is. 
So that's why I wrote the book. And I, I want to change the way anxiety is understood and treated across the world. And I'm slowly doing that on Clubhouse. So that's, yeah, things are good. Things are good. You know what? In in my work and in life experience, you know, when you're talking about your mom and the way that she was stuck on the misery and the negativity, what I've realized is that that misery and self feelings of self hate become like an addiction. Yeah. In a lot of us, and we have to almost, we have to treat it like an addiction because we when you learn to feel safe in that misery and in that self hate. It's it's the same as somebody feeling safe when they drink the alcohol, right? Yeah. Yeah, Freud talked about that. He talked about the repetition compulsion. So the urge to replicate what was familiar to you in childhood in your adulthood. And you do it unconsciously, unwittingly. Like I, I talk about a patient of mine who was beautiful. Like she was one of the most attractive women I've ever seen. And she had her pick of any men, but she would pick abusive alcoholics. Her father was an abusive alcoholic. So she was just kind of replicating that same that same pattern over and over and over again. So unfortunately, one of the, the faults in our wiring as human beings is we equate what was familiar to us in childhood with safety or security. So we'll unconsciously replicate that in adulthood. So what, what Jane did was she would pick alcoholic boyfriends, which was kind of replicating the the you know familiarity of her childhood and we all do it i mean that's one of the exercises i work with with people with patients is i say okay what are your patterns what what are your patterns from childhood and how how are those patterns showing up in your current day-to-day life how are they showing up in the relationships the partners you choose the partners that choose you because we do emit a certain energy and people treat us the way we treat ourselves so if you treat yourself like you know you're a people pleaser, you're gonna you're gonna attract a narcissist. That's just what's gonna happen, uh, or or at least, and then you're gonna form a codependent relationship because that's familiar to you, and we equate familiarity with security. So awareness is our big tool. It's going, you know, do I really want to do this again? Even though there is this compulsion to replicate what we what we felt in childhood, can we kind of override that? And I think you can override that when you develop a relationship with that part of you, that child part of you that was suffering, you know? So the reason why Jane picked alcoholic boyfriends was she was trying to get the love from her dad. I mean, it's a bit, that's a bit, you know, kind of Freudian, but it may not be, it may or may not be accurate, but you know, it's amazing. The, the patterns that we adopt unconsciously and just unconsciously act them out. And we just act them out day after day after day. And my mother does that. My mother, you know, I think her family really focused a lot on misery. So, you know, she if there wasn't anything particular uh, troubling in our particular family, she'd be like, oh, you know, I'm just feeling really bad about the earthquake in Bangladesh. Or, you know, there's this, you know, there's this outbreak in New Zealand or something. It's like, oh, you know, there's got to be something. Uh, but I realized that that's, that's, what she was felt, that's what she felt familiar with. You know, so I could see her with compassion because I knew that she was replicating this old pattern because there's some sense of familiarity in that. And that familiarity yields a sense of security on some level. So, yeah, so it's it's being able, and I, I agree with you, I think worry is 
is a habit and it's replicating a sense of security. It, it, you do get dopamine, you know, shot into your head from worry. You get a whole bunch of chemicals. And then when the worry doesn't come true, you get all this oxytocin in there. So, so there is all this stuff that goes along with worry. You know, James Clear wrote this great book called Atomic Habits. And he talks in there about the nucleus accumbens. And the nucleus accumbens basically wants to want. It's, it's the part of your brain that just wants things. And the way he describes it is, you know, when, you, uh, you know when, you're, when you're a child and you're anticipating opening your gifts on Christmas Day, you get a huge, you know, dopamine rush. Like, it's just like, oh, my God, it's going to be like the best day. And then you see that child at noon on Christmas Day and all the gifts are gone uh, or they're opened and the charge isn't there anymore. You know, so the nucleus accumbens loves to want, but once it gets what it wants, it's kind of like, meh, whatever. And, and that's another unfortunate part of human wiring is something called habituation, which is we just we just get used to whatever we have and that becomes the normal. You know, so we look at these movie stars like, my God, if I had that mansion and that pool and, and then those cars, I'd be just the happiest guy. Maybe not, you know. Maybe not. There's a lot of people who have a lot of money who are extremely unhappy. And I remember doing a joke, and I can't remember what it was. It was about, you know, money doesn't make you happy. It doesn't make you sad. You know, there's not. it doesn't make you sad. But money doesn't, you know, provide. Because you see all these people who are very wealthy and very unhappy. And, yeah, it's just, it's your outlook. It's how, it's, and it's basically the blocks to caring for yourself. That's really what it comes down to. Life has a lot to do with how how many obstacles you put in your own way to connecting with yourself and medicine wasn't working for me anymore it was a block and i just i had to leave it even though it paid me a good salary and then it gave me a great title but uh it wasn't it wasn't really fulfilling me and i knew my dharma was doing this so it was painful but i did it i want to hear about how worry releases dopamine in our brain okay. I've never heard that before. Well, it makes the uncertain certain, right? So, okay, say I say I have a a, a lump on, on my you know on my side somewhere. Now I don't know what that lump is. It's it, you know so all this uncertainty comes up and this this fear comes up in in my mind and in my body, and then I think, okay, well maybe it's cancer. Well, that's horrible, but at least it makes sense. And, it's, and the mind has a compulsive need to make sense of things. So as soon as it makes sense of something, you get a little hit of dopamine. Same thing with comedy. Comedy is basically you take people down a path and then you flip them right back on the same path and you tell them the opposite thing to what you just told them. And then when that makes sense to them, they laugh. Because I, I used to have this joke about, you know, they say laughter is the best medicine, right? Like you've heard that before, laughter is the best medicine. Well, not if you have syphilis. You know, if you have syphilis, you can laugh all you want. It's still going to burn when you pee, right? So, so antibiotics, <laughs> antibiotics are your best medicine. Laughter is kind of, you know, after you get the antibiotics, <laughs> then you can laugh all you want. So it's like, so, so it, it, you, you kind of flip that back. So when something that, and so I just put some dopamine in both of your heads, you know, from laughing. So that's what it is. Like people with anxiety hate uncertainty almost more than anything else. So when you worry about something, you make it a little more certain. If only the story that you're telling yourself makes things a little more certain. So we get a little dopamine hit from that. So there is this compulsion to worrying. Worrying does something. Worrying keeps us out of this pain in our body and it keeps us in our head. So people say, well, worry does nothing. Worry actually does quite a few things. So it is one of those things, or we wouldn't do it. Like, like physiologically, 
psychologically, we wouldn't do it if it didn't serve us somehow. So it's realizing that what worry does, is it keeps you out of that pain in your body. It distracts you from the alarm that's in your body, but it can only do that for so long. So people get into their, you know, their late twenties, early thirties, and things just start to crack at that point. You know, there's in, in somatic experiencing therapy, we call things defensive accommodation. So we develop these accommodations to adverse experiences when we're ch- when we're children and we keep riding them until the wheels come off and worry is one of those things so when you're a child and you worry geez i hope my dad isn't gonna be drunk when i get home and then he's not drunk when you get home so you get a bit of a dopamine hit from that and then you get trained you train yourself that that worry kind of gives you a little little boost and especially when it doesn't come true so it's very addictive worry is very addictive and i think anxiety is basically kind of the same thing as OCD, but it's OCD for worrying. So you just can't stop worrying. And you get a, you get a hit from worrying, just like people with OCD get a hit when they tap things five times or they turn around twice before they go through a doorway. So we have to learn to give ourselves the, the equivalent hit in connection to ourselves so we, st- we start a new habit. We start a new pathway, uh, an unconscious pathway that is uh, constructive as opposed to destructive. That makes a lot of sense. Yeah, absolutely. We always talk about that on this podcast is the resistance to uncertainty. Yeah. And if you you had trauma, yeah, if you had trauma as a child, uncertainty is excruciating for you because you'll go back to that place. There's, There's a little theory that says, you know, when you experience a trauma as a child, part of you stays at that age for the rest of your life, right? So, you know, the, the, the girl who was, was the singer, she goes but when she when anyone challenges her on anything she goes back to being six years old and she freaks and she panics she doesn't know she's six years old she doesn't know she's regressed to a six-year-old but you know one of the things i like i love to say is all extreme reactions are age regressions you know so if you if you and your partner get in some huge war you're both probably about seven years old and how do you think that's going to go not very well so, you know, any extreme reaction is an age regression. It just is. So we can navigate that by going back, getting back in touch with that part of us that with is the eight-year-old. Yeah, go back and find that eight-year-old and practice in advance too. Because, you know, if, if I said to you guys, look, uh, August 31st, we're going to go to the, we're going to go to the basketball court. And if you can each sink three free throws, uh, I'll give you each a million dollars. Are you going to start practicing free throws the day before? <laughs> Yesterday. <laughs> <laughs> right? So it's, it's the same thing with anxiety. It's like practice when you're not feeling anxious because so often people, you know, wait until they're completely stressed out. It's like, okay, I have to breathe now. Okay, I've got to breathe. Okay, I've got to calm down. So it's this Band-Aid kind of thing. Whereas if you waited, you know, if you're feeling calm and you go, okay, well, what's good right now? What's good? What feels good? My feet feel good on the floor. My butt feels, you know... Um, safe, like safe and, and, and supported in the chair. Like I feel grounded, you know, don't wait until you get into a crisis before you try and heal. Cause you can't heal when you're in a crisis. The best you can do is kind of get yourself out of the damn crisis. So that's, that's what I tell people all the time. It's like, okay, you know, find, find your alarm. Uh, for a lot of people, it's in their heart space, their heart area, solar plexus kind of stuff. And a number of times a day, just put your hand over it, you know, and just sort of make like a light connection with that younger version of yourself you don't have to say anything you don't have to do anything after a while it just becomes this practice that you just kind of you just do automatically and then the more you can build that connection with yourself 
because it's it's the younger part of you that's freaking out. It's the younger part of you that's anxious. It's the younger part of you that's depressed and down, and and it's the younger part of you that that, that runs the eating disorders or 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 runs the, the the fear or the OCD. So if you can find that place on a regular basis and connect with him or her, you're going to develop a conduit that you can use to to help fix the problem when it does arise. But if you just wait until it gets too it gets too intense. It's very hard to fix something, you know. It's very hard if your house is on fire to put it out from the inside, right? You got to get out. You got to get clear of it, and then you, and then you can put it out. But so many of us try, you know. We wait. Our house gets on fire. We get, you know, panicked or whatever, and then we try and fix it from the inside. You know, it's like, no, you got to get out of the house. You got to get into your body, and you got to feel the support, breathe, whatever you need to do to get into your body, get into the sensation of the present moment. And then you can sort of pull yourself back from your future worries or your past traumas by getting into the present moment. And sensation is one of the best ways of doing that. You can only sense in the moment. I can't tell you, you know, tomorrow at 3.45 p.m. I'm going to have to pee. You know, I can't tell you that because I don't know that. I, I can only sense that in the moment. Right now I don't have to pee. But it's like that's my sensation. That's in the moment. So when we get into the moment, that's where we can heal. And that's... That's one of my issues with mindfulness. I think mindfulness is amazing, but they stop short because you're right on the verge of that, you know, self-compassion place where you connect with that younger part of yourself. You know, just being in the moment itself, there's this feeling like, okay, well, if you live in the moment and you can get all Zen and you can stay in the moment, then everything's going to heal. And that's not necessarily the case. When you get into that Zen moment where you do feel that mindfulness, and I'm sure you guys know this from Vipassana, is that that's the time that you go the extra mile and start, you know, pouring a bunch of compassion into yourself. That's the perfect time. Like that, I, I, I've almost thrown stuff at the TV because it's like they, they go, well, get in the moment, like really feel the moment and stuff. It's like, yes, once you're there, though, love, like put the love into yourself. Like you're just so close, like you're so close to just healing, which is basically getting into that mindfulness moment, pulling yourself out of the future worries and the past pain, and then really feeling yourself and really, you know, throwing some compassion and some love and some appreciation for yourself in that mindful moment, as opposed to just sort of sitting there. And there's nothing wrong in meditation with just sort of sitting there in the moment. But once you're there, you know, there's not, there's also nothing wrong with, with really putting that compassion into yourself. Like you're all the, all the conditions are right. All the prerequisites have been solved. You know, you're right there. Like you're right there. Like just learn how to learn how to just use that compassion, use that, that, that conduit that you've just made for compassion for yourself. Cause that will change. That will change the, your unconscious programming. And that will give you a place that you don't feel so off balance. I really want to dive into your experience with your father's suicide. And then the time yeah. that you were suicidal, I was 26 when my dad died. Yeah. And my dad's death was a bit of a relief, actually, you know, because he was in such pain. Like he, he had a combination of bipolar and schizophrenia. So he was just getting worse and worse year on year, just worse and worse and worse. So, and there was no, like, if my dad presented to psychiatry today, he still, he still would have ended up the same way because we didn't have the, the, the psychiatry hasn't changed much in the last 40 or 50 years. Right now, the psychedelics may help change that, and I think that's great. I think that there's that you know they're, they're starting to use ketamine-assisted therapy and and uh, even MDMA, which isn't classically a psychedelic, but they're using MDMA and PTSD now, which is which is helpful too. 
But for me, when I ruptured my Achilles tendon and I wasn't going to be Dr. Russell Kennedy anymore, um, and the anxiety was just relentless. It was just like day after day. It was like living in an eight to 12 hour panic attack every single day and nothing was helping. And it was just like, well, I can't live like this for any length of time. And that's when I went to India. Um, and then when I came back from India and then on top of that, the, the next time that I was suicidal was, uh, after ayahuasca because ayahuasca is a, is a very heavy duty, um, psychedelic and it just tore me apart. Uh, it gave me some insights as well, but it also tore me apart. And it took me about two years to recover from ayahuasca. So that was, that was I mean, there, there was never really a point where I had a bunch of pills in my hand or I was on the edge of a, you know, you know jumping off a bridge. But there was, after ayahuasca, there was this, this place where I thought, okay, well, uh, there was a bridge not that far from my house. And it was like, okay, I could go to that bridge and I could jump off. And luckily, I had some... Um, um, benzodiazepine, like some, some Ativan or something like that. And I took like three Ativan and that basically kind of snowed me out and that kind of calmed me down and, and sort of saved my, my life. So I have nothing against medication. I really don't. Um, because sometimes it's needed. Sometimes it's absolutely needed. What I do have a problem with medication is, is that when it just brings people down to the point where they go they go below the critical mass where they'll do anything about what's going on in their lives or what went on in their lives. So it just makes them more functional, but it often makes them more numb. Yeah. So I talk about that too, you know, like that people don't have the anxiety or the depression anymore, but they don't really feel much of anything. And that's no way to live either. But, you know, sometimes you got to work. Sometimes you've got three kids, you know, sometimes you got to support them. You got to take an antidepressant. I have nothing against medication. I really don't. I just think that that so often there's other ways of doing it before that. The other way would be somatic experiencing therapy. You know, people ask me all the time, should I do, you know, I've got severe anxiety, depression, you know, alcoholism, whatever. Should I do a psychedelic? And I said, well, you know, I would probably recommend that you do six months of somatic therapy first, like somatic experiencing or something like that. And then consider it because it really is, it's a, it's a horrendous experience, not for everybody. You know, some people think it's, you know, they see rainbows and, you know, dragons and, you know, my little ponies or whatever they see, but it, it is, you know, whatever it is, like every color, you know, cause when you go in it, when you go in a, to ayahuasca, when you do aya, like the first 30 minutes, it's like, well, this isn't that bad. There's nothing happening. And then all of a sudden everything is purple and geometric and pink. And then your your brain just stops working. You stop you stop having the ability to process what you're seeing. Because I remember falling, having this 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 feeling like I was falling, and then I would have this sense like, okay, well I'm falling. And then my my brain would go, well, what does falling mean? I couldn't I, I couldn't grasp the word falling. I could grasp it for maybe a millisecond, and then it would go and it would go. So there was nothing I could hold on to. And in fact, that's what I would say when I was when I was taking ayahuasca was there's nothing to hold on to. There's nothing to hold on to. I kept repeating that. There's nothing to hold on At least that's what they tell me. And and I think that goes back to my childhood when I felt like there was nothing to hold on to. So when I got back, there was points where I was, you know, like I said, I've never really been like on the ledge or anything like that. But there have been, there have been points where I just didn't want to live. Like if living was going to be like this, there was just no, there was no point. If I was going to live in an eight to 10 hour panic attack every day, there was really no point in just sort of going through the motions and living life at that point. So that's when I went to India. That's when I did ayahuasca. That's when I did LSD. You know, I was, my back was to the wall. I had no, I had no real choice. And people said, well, weren't you, cause I'm a bit of a, a scaredy cat to start with. 
And it's like, well, weren't you afraid of LSD? And it's like, yeah, of course I was, but it was kind of like a lesser of two evils at that point. And nothing was improving. Nothing, I, my, my outlook was not improving at all. So I had to do something. And LSD wound up probably saving my life in a lot of ways. Was there anything about ayahuasca that helped you? <sighs> yeah, ayahuasca was, um, it, it, it kind of had that similar reinforcement that, that the anxiety was separate from me. And it also did show me that I was one with everything. Um, you know, because here's, here's the other thing from the neuroscience point of view is that the default mode network in the brain, which is basically the activity of the brain when you're not doing a specific task, they think that the ego is, is, is housed in the default mode network, right? So the ego is what, what protects you, what creates worries, um, but it's really just trying to protect you. The ego is just trying to protect you. But in protecting you, it stops you from growing because it doesn't allow you to experience pain or anything that's hurt you in the past. So the thing about the thing about the ego that uh, that really is difficult to manage is that it just takes you over. Now the thing about psychedelics is they paralyze the ego, and they also, when you do a functional MRI scan or you do a, a brain scan on someone who's on psychedelics you'll see that the same circuits that, that are they're involved with the default mode network shut down. So they think the ego, because it gets shut down with psychedelics, may be housed in the default mode network. So if the default mode network gets shut down and the ego gets shut down, maybe the ego is in the default mode network, which makes sense because that's when you sort of start daydreaming when you're not focused on something. You know, when you when you go through a breakup or whatever and you're at work and you're like, you're, you're hurting, but you're still, you're working, it's not so painful. Then you get home and everything hits you full force because there's nothing else to distract you. So that default mode network, when you're not doing a particular task, kind of comes online. And there's other um, studies, not maybe not studies, but an inference that maybe shame is also held in the default mode network too. So when we when we kind of go into this, when we're not busy, that's kind of when our shame comes up too. You know, mm. so shame is one of the biggest. Shame is one of the biggest triggers for anxiety and depression and, and eating disorders and all that kind of stuff, too. So we're starting to see now that the default mode network may house the ego. And when you take a psychedelic, it paralyzes that ego. So when you paralyze the ego, what the ego does is it separates me from you, for one, and it separates me from my environment. So what psychedelics do is all of a sudden you and I are the same. Like we're not different. Like when you when your mind is on psychedelics, everything molds into everything else. And I am not different from my from my environment, my external environment as well. So and I'm also the conscious and the unconscious, which is what the default mode network and the, the, the prefrontal cortex do is they give you a sense, okay, this is conscious, this is unconscious. What the psychedelics do is they blur the boundary between consciousness and unconsciousness as well. So everything kind of gets completely kind of uh, chopped up and there's really nothing to hold on to. So that's why. So ayahuasca was, was frightening. It was just, it was just really uncomfortable and scary and frightening. And um, I don't think I'd ever do it again, but I know that I'm a very strong person because even after the most frightening experience of my life, and I've, I've had panic attacks, like horrible, horrible panic attacks. But ayahuasca was hands down the heavyweight champion of, of pain, like of, of just fear and fright. And I know I'm strong because I went back the second night and did it again because the shaman that I was with said, there's no point in doing it for one night. You don't really learn much. And he, and he, was, he was right. 
even though the second night didn't give me a lot of re revelations, it did kind of reinforce what I already knew. Um, but I did it again, you know, even though that was, that was frightening. So I know I could pretty much handle anything based on the fact that I went back for a second night after, after that. So that's ayahuasca. I, I just, I, and I, I, like I said, I don't recommend it to people. I mean, I have friends who have done ayahuasca who were alcoholic and never drank again. You know, so so I think there 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 are these sort of cathartic experiences that people have. Um, it just didn't happen for me. You know, it actually made my anxiety worse. Uh, but it also did give me uh, the the picture of how I had to heal it, though too. So you know, it's a bit of a, a well, it's not a bit of a. It was a huge double edged sword. You know, LSD, ayahuasca, and then MDM, MDMA was actually a really interesting experience because you know you just you just feel this overwhelming love. You know, and then I, I remember academically going, okay, while I was on MDMA, it's like, okay, develop, you know, what's your worst worry? You know, what's your worst worry? Like developing the same, you know, mental illness as your fa my father, that was my worst worry. And uh, it didn't, you know, didn't bother me a bit. It's like, okay, well, if that happened, I, you know, I deal with it. So it's really funny how you, when you have all this love running around in your head, how worry just can't live in there. And I think they're using MDMA now for PTSD just to show people the other side, just to show that you know love is what conquers fear and it is like a closed box so the more love you push in the more fear gets pushed out but the more fear you push in the more love gets pushed in and they're both self-fulfilling prophecies um yeah they're, they're, yeah i think i'm letting you guys talk way too much <laughs> <laughs> you know with the ayahuasca experience i wonder because this is something we've talked about on here too before is that Sometimes when people are trying to rush to the solution of their pain, totally. they want to they wanna transcend themselves. But if you don't do some groundwork to totally. connect with yourself before you try to transcend yourself, that can be extremely disorienting for the ego and, and can actually backfire. Couldn't agree more. Like that. Yeah. I, I've said almost those exact words. Um, that, that's why I tell people like do six months of somatic experiencing therapy. My yeah. wife, Cynthia, is a somatic trauma therapist. That's what she's, that, that's her main, main mode of, of um, therapy. Although she's trained in, in intergenerational trauma and uh, developmental psychology as well. But SE is, is her main, is her main focus. And it really is about slowing everything down, you know, slowing down your feelings, seeing how you go from one thought to the next thought and how that affects your body. And, and once you can slow it down to a certain point and you can feel it in your body, then you, then you have some control over it because you know where the source of it is. Otherwise, once you get so alarmed, once your system is so alarmed, you drop in a survival brain and out of prefrontal cortex, you know, your prefrontal cortex is right behind your forehead, which is kind of like your thriving brain. It's, it's, it's your rational brain. And then the emotional brain, the limbic system is in kind of the center of your head between you put your fingers in, in both ears between your fingers is kind of like the emotional brain. And when we get into emotional slash survival brain, we lose our rational ability, which makes sense because, you know, thousands and thousands of years ago, if you're being chased by a predator or there's a warring tribe after you, you don't need to be socially connected. You don't need to be like, hey, Bill, how's it going with the wife? It doesn't work that way. Like you need, you need to be able to <laughs> fight or, you know, you need to be able to fight or flight, you know, like let's get going. So it's, it's automatic. Uh, but the problem is that, you know, we try and solve our, our, our issues 
when we're in alarm brain. And you can't, like, like I was saying earlier, many of us have been tra transported back to being eight, 10 years old. So how's a 10 year old gonna solve a problem of a divorce, you know, or, you know, a massive tax bill or something like that? They can't, they don't have the, the ability to do it, which creates just more and more alarm. So you get into this cycle and you can't get out. So what I write in the book is like how you get, how you break the cycle, how you see your thoughts so you don't have to be your thoughts. I'm so curious about your belief system. Something that we've talked about in a lot on this podcast is how anxiety and, or how your belief system plays such a huge part in your relationship with the universe and your relationship with yourself, right? Yeah. And speaking personally for myself, I have an underlying belief system that I'm always held, right? So okay. for me with that, my anxiety, I, I it can only reach to a scale of totally. like, three or four max before yeah. it just goes back down. Now, do you have like an official kind of deity that you worship? I believe in it... the universe, spirit okay. guides, yeah, okay. energy. Great. Yeah, because faith is so massive, right? Like in this book, you know, Anxiety Rx, the, the biggest, the big, it's written in 108 short chapters. One of the, A couple of them aren't that short. But uh, the longest chapter is chapter 107, which is basically the chapter on faith. Because so many of us, when we're children, if we have trauma, we get this impression that everything is up to us. It's all up to us. And if everything is up to you and you regress back to an eight-year-old, that's not going to go well because you're only, you only you only feel like you're eight years old and everything's, everything's on my shoulders and I'm eight years old. That's just going to compound itself. So it's having faith that you are held, you know, having faith that the, the universe is a safe place. And I do that with people all the time because so many people go from trauma because they, they grew up with trauma. They go from trauma to trauma to trauma to trauma. And this is what I mean by that. So I had a patient who was afraid of flying. So at the end of the, at the, in that month that we were in, he said, I'm afraid of flying at the end of the month and I'm just petrified. So I, I gave him a little bit of medication for that. And then as soon as he got, he, as soon as he landed safely, he started worrying about a dental procedure that he had to have on, another month later. Right. So it's like, and I said to him, so can you, are you using that thing that I told you? Am I safe in this moment? And he says, well, no, I, I kind of forgot because what that does is when you, when you tell yourself, am I safe in this moment? And you assure yourself that you are, you know, maybe five minutes from now, you're going to have a dental procedure or something's going to go wrong. But in this moment that you're in, am I safe? And I work with him a lot because what happens with a lot of us when we grow up with trauma is this, and this is what this guy did. So all for the month leading up to the, the plane trip, he was pe petrified of the plane trip. And then when the plane landed safely, then he became petrified of the, the dental, dental procedure that was coming up four weeks later. So he went from trauma to trauma to trauma. He never actually acknowledged that he was safe. And he actually resisted acknowledging that he was safe because his pattern was to just go from trauma. That he was familiar with going from trauma to trauma to trauma. And so many of us do that with anxiety is that there's always the next trauma. There's always, so we never actually acknowledge that we're safe. So when we acknowledge that we're safe, our unconscious mind has to kind of go, oh, I guess we're not always in danger. I guess we're, I guess there are islands. And this is what, you know, some of the, the somatic therapies talk about is that just creating this little island of safety, you know, a bunch of times a day where you put your hand on your chest and you just focus on just being safe in the moment, you ground your feet on the floor, you feel the support of the, the bed if you're lying down, and then you create these sort of islands of safety. 
And then as you do that, you create this kind of landmass of safety. And then once you get to that point, things go a lot better. Faith is one of those things that allow you to make those little islands. And they and you show that, that there's something beyond me, you know, and you show that the, the child in you isn't, that's not where you are anymore. You know, you, there, and there are, there is something looking after us. It, it's inherent, life is inherently safe. And, and I think that we look at, we look at, because we're always inundated with the news and COVID and, you know, wars and all this kind of stuff, but life is safe. Most people, when we hear about somebody dying at, you know, 38 or something like that, that's an anomaly. Like that, that doesn't happen very often. Life for most of us is pretty damn safe, but we don't acknowledge that, especially those with trauma when we're younger, because it becomes a familiar pattern to just go from trauma to trauma to trauma. Do you have any advice if you could give it to our listeners, people who are really just starting on this journey, on this journey of helping Buy my book? Actually, yeah. I mean, really, we'll link it below. We're definitely going to link it below because, I mean, you just have a wealth of knowledge. I wish I could talk to you for literally ever. Yeah. So I guess buy your book and and then also any last words on like people really just starting on their journey of anxiety. Is there like a little just a hint of like in the moment do this if you can't afford therapy or you can't afford any of these? Yeah. Yeah. It's really about just connecting with yourself, really. It's, you know, put... Put your hand, you know, a lot of times what I'll do with people is I'll say, you know, think of a trauma in your life. Don't pick the worst trauma of your life, but think of a trauma. Think of something that like a breakup when you were younger that was really painful or, or whatever. And see if you can localize where that lights up in your body. You know, a lot of people will find it in their throat or around their heart or in their solar plexus or in their, in their belly somewhere. And it's like, does it have a shape? Does it have a color? Does it have a temperature? Does it have a size? Is it well demarcated or is it kind of like an amorphous, like a jellyfish? Does it, does it push up? Does it push up into your heart? Does it push down? Into your, does it radiate anywhere? Really localize that alarm. And then because that alarm is probably your younger self. And then just put your hand over that alarm a number of times a day and just reassure that younger version of yourself that you're okay. And do that a number of times a day. And that's how we heal. We heal by healing the wounds of our younger selves. That's really what happens. And it's not complicated. It's We don't have to go through tremendous amounts of, of psychotherapy. We don't have to know the exact reason. Although Dan Siegel talks about this, having a coherent narrative of your life, knowing what happened to you and be able to tell that story is important. But often we get people to tell the story and it's almost re-traumatizing you know, to go into a new therapist and tell the same old story. My dad was schizophrenic. I didn't feel close to him, you know, all this kind of stuff. And it's really about feeling. It's not about thinking. It's about being able to feel and being safe to feel again. And if the issue is in your body, you know, if the issue's down here in your body, why are we constantly going up into our heads thinking we're going to fix? It's like having a fire on first street and sending all the fire trucks to third street. Like it's just, that's dumbfounds me. And that's what I find so strange about the way that we're we're trying to heal things. My dogs. Uh, we're trying to heal things by going at it the wrong way. We're trying to heal the mind using the mind. And like Einstein said, the problem can't be solved at the same level it was created. It has to be solved at a different level. And that level is your body. Mm. I just have and to say this. Oh, go ahead. No, no, no. Just that's my dog, Buddha, if you can hear him in the background. Yeah, Buddha. Yeah. Oh, my God. Buddha's my I... dog. Oh, yeah. I found a stray. I'm almost like, what if that was Buddha? I found a stray dog once and I named him Buddha and then I shipped him off to some owners. Well, that would be wild. I know it's not him, yeah. but I just have to say that um, 
this is the fifth podcast in a row where a dog has made an appearance. So it's kind of, hey. yeah. What is the, well, you, the said you, invoked, tell us? you invoked all our spirits. So I did. So you, you pretty much answered this, but I just, if you have any last tidbits, we always ask all of our guests. The final question is what does mental health mean for you right now? I think it's, you know, seeing my thoughts and not being my thoughts, you know, the ability to see it, the ability to have faith that, you know, my mom just broke her hip a couple of days ago and, and she's pretty frail. I don't know if she's going to make it through it. Um, but just, yeah, just having faith, like faith is just so important. Um, religious faith or just faith that the world is inherently a safe place and really focusing on the fact that you are guided, you are protected. And, you know, that's a, a comfort for a lot of people. And for a lot of us with trauma, we lost faith when we were little because things went really badly for us in a lot of ways. So we lost faith in life. And, you know, when you lose faith, you lose a huge ally. So, yeah, I, you know, that's probably the, the biggest hint is like when you go through tough times, faith is just so important that, that things, this, this too shall pass, as my mother would say. You know, faith is just so important to realize that there is something called the recency bias, which is basically how when people feel badly, there's part of our brain that makes us think we're going to feel this way forever. And it's not true. It's not true. Everything, everything passes, you know, and if, and if you don't resist the feeling, you give it a chance to, to pass through you. If you resist something, you hold on to it tighter. You don't allow it to pass through you. So just faith that you're, you're here for a reason and that, you know, it's all about just connecting with love for yourself and your relationship with yourself, you know, can be your relationship with other people can be no greater than the relationship with yourself. So the better your relationship with yourself, the more, you know, the, the better partner you're going to attract, all that kind of stuff. So it's really about just connecting and, and not judging yourself. Like really, I didn't mention this and I know I'm prattling on here a little bit, but I have this acronym called JABS and we take jabs at ourselves all the time. And JAB stands for self-judgment, abandonment, blame, and shame. And just realize when you're doing that stuff and realize, you know, use some faith that you don't have to do that. Like you think that it's helping you. Like some part of you thinks that you're, you know, pushing yourself forward or I'm making myself stronger, but you're not. You're not, you know, so just be aware of the jabs you take at yourself and have faith that you're, you're here for a reason. Amazing. Wow. 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 All of this. Amazing. Thank you so much. I, I truly, welcome, I just ladies. feel like every part of your brain is so developed. <laughs> like you literally have just a wealth of knowledge well, for every cor corner of your brain. They haven't stumped me yet. So we'll just keep going. So now I have to guess your zodiac sign. We do this with oh, okay. most of our guests, and I'm it's, gonna it's give. It's actually pretty. Yeah, it's pretty. It's usually pretty easy. But go ahead. I'm gonna give two guesses, okay? Because these are the two okay. that came up. But my first one okay. is Capricorn. Capricorn. Okay. Oh wait, so one? no? Is that a no? God damn it! No. Okay, a Aquarius. Nope, Sagittarius. Damn oh, it! I was say a fire oh. sign. No. I was totally no. gonna say a fire sign. Yeah. Mm. I'm starting to doubt my abilities with this now. This yeah, well, it's all perception, isn't it? Okay. Well, Sagittarius. Actually, no, what, what I meant was it's all projection, right? So you see the parts, because I, I would guess that you're one of those. A Capricorn? Yeah. Or or uh, what was the other one you said? Aquarius. Are you either one of those? I'm an Aries. I'm a fire okay. sign. Okay. I this often say that Capricorn and Aries are pretty similar, though. They've right. got some similarities with how like 
Yeah, and then um, we're all fire here. She's yeah, a Leo. A fire tribe. Oh, there you go. This is a fire there tribe. You oh, your birthday's coming up, Paul. It is. It is. Yeah. Yeah, Leo season. Get ready, everybody. <laughs> I always envy people that see my birthday's in November. My birthday's the 29th of November. And nothing, wow. nothing nice happens in the world, you know, uh, in the Northern Hemisphere on November 29th. I remember on my birthday coming out of like chemistry lab, biochem lab. And it's like 4.30 in the afternoon. And, and I live in Victoria, British Columbia, which is just above Seattle. And uh, it's dark, you know. And November 29th at 4.30 in the afternoon, it's just pitch black, you know. So it's uh, nothing much happens. But I always envy people that have a nice summer birthday, you know, summer birthday parties and all that kind of stuff. But whatever. I'll have to deal with it. I'll have to deal with it. You can just come celebrate with us. Sure. Join, join, join the Leo. As, as soon as they open the borders, as soon as they open the borders, I'll come down and see you guys. Mm. Well, I guess you're in Atlanta, so it's a way. And, or LA, always sunny in LA. Um, how can everyone find you? Uh, the Anxiety MD is usually the best way. That's my brand. Uh, it's my YouTube channel. It's my Instagram page. It's my website. It pretty much has everything on there. Just the Anxiety MD. That's the easiest way to find me. Okay, perfect. And then your book is sold Amazon and where else? Amazon, yeah, bookstores, that kind of stuff. Yeah, it's um, Amazon's probably the easiest way to get it at this point. And uh, I'm finishing the audiobook. Like uh, as we speak, I'm on, I'm polishing up chapter seventy-one, and uh, I'll have a, all hundred and eight done by another week, and then I'll send it off to Audible, and they will put it up on um, Audible as an audiobook which I'm excited about because I get a chance to use a bit of my stand-up comedy background. And because the narration, I was amazed at how, how much there is to narrating an audiobook. You know, when I first, when I first started, I'd just take a random thing and I'd be like, uh, here's chapter 44, the tuna lady. When I was a med student on my psych rotation circa 1990, I had a patient I called the tuna lady. Now I have to read it like this. Chapter 44, the tuna lady. When I was a med student on my psych rotation circa 1990, I had a patient I called the tuna lady. Now that's, that's what, that's what you have, like, that's what yeah. you have to do. Yeah. So it's like, okay, cause this is the only, this is your voice is the only way of, of putting out, you know, they're going to hear it like that. So I really, I really enjoyed actually making the audiobook cause I do some impressions in there. Cause I used to do that on stage and that kind of stuff. So I, I think I do like Schwarzenegger in there and there's a couple of other like impressions that I put in there just for fun, you know, just to make the audiobook a little more fun to listen to. So yeah, excuse me. I, uh, I've really, I'm really enjoying doing the book. I, I'm really enjoying doing the narration, the audiobook, and it's endorsed by Nicola Perra too. So the book, yeah. So she's, Nicole is awesome. The holistic yeah. psychologist. The holistic psychologist. Yeah. Yeah, that's amazing. So. And we're going to have to connect offline about getting your wife on here because she sounds amazing as well. I she can only imagine awesome. the conversations yeah, that you great. guys have. Since great. She's a lot more shy than I am, you know, but you know, it's amazing because we did one um, sort of podcast episode together with our friend, Deborah, who's a, a spirit medium. And um, so she's like, I don't know if I'm going to be able to say anything at, at one point. It was like sin, like shut the fuck up. <laughs> you know, it was like I'm trying to, you know, I'm trying to get stuff in here. I, you know, I don't mean to swear. We have a, a joke. It's not like I'm abusive to her or anything like that. But it's just like you know, she says, "Well, I don't know if I'm going to say much." And it's like you know, at, at one point, I'm looking at her like, you know, like, 
okay, you know, like, let me say something. Like, you know, so she, so she, I think, she, you know, and she's like a wealth of knowledge as well too, and highly intuitive. So um, she's a great therapist. Like she's really, really good at tapping into the body and, and she, I've done a bunch of sessions with her and she's really, really amazing. So, so yeah, I'll, I'll hook you guys up and you can chat with her and uh, she may want me here as well. Just to kind of say, but once she gets, you know, once she gets going, man, she, you can't stop her. Amazing. And I'll have to guess her sign too. So don't tell me. Okay. <laughs> Perfect. Thank you okay. so much for speaking with us. Hey, you're today. welcome ladies. Yeah. Yeah. You're welcome. It's, it's been great. So yeah, it's my third sort of interview today. So, but this one was like, my brain usually starts clicking in around like 12 noon, 1 PM. Like I'm not a morning person. So a couple other ones in the morning, I'm like, oh, okay. But today I get a little, I get a little fired up once it gets to the afternoon, as you can tell by uh, how fast I start talking. Perfect. Let's fit as much knowledge as we can in here. All right, Dr. Russ, thank you so much. We'll be releasing this on Monday. So we will send you all the links over email. You'll have Sounds great. And I'll share them too. Awesome. Amazing. Thank you. We will talk to Thanks, you. Thanks, Colin. Soon. Thanks, Colin, to you. Thank you. All the love. Bye. Bye. That was an amazing conversation, everyone. Thank you so much for tuning in with us and Dr. Russ and his wealth of knowledge. We hope that conversation served you guys as much as it served us. It definitely got our wheels turning and also reminded me to return to to continue to value these Vipassana practices that we got introduced to so long ago. I'm feeling a little salty that I have not guessed these zodiac signs correctly in a minute. What's happening? Yeah, I'm surprised. I, I, I had a feeling he was a fire sign. We need to start letting you also guess. We got to let you guess too. So we can see. So we can see. Someone's yeah. got to be right. If you get it right, I'll feel validated. That's all I need. It's fine. <laughs> at least, <laughs> at least one of us. Here. At least a one, one, one win for the team. At least you one win for the team. You can't be representing all of Pretty Mental in this. It's starting to hurt my heart. Yeah. All right, you guys, make sure you grab a copy of Anxiety Rx, which is Dr. Russ's book that he self-published, which is sold everywhere. We will link that below. And we're also going to link below the day and the time that he hosts these intuitive readings in Clubhouse because that just sounds absolutely amazing. And make sure you guys tune in with us every Monday at 6 a.m. EST. Los queremos mucho. Los queremos mucho. Be kind to yourselves and remember all parts of you are welcome here. We love you from the tops of our heads to the tips of our toes. Feel it, pretty mental fam. Peace out. Mwah. <laughs>